The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. Well, if you're just jumping in with us, we are moving through a study, both in worship and in small groups, of the book of Philippians, the great Saul of Tarsus, ever since having an encounter on the road to Damascus with a man by the name of Jesus who claimed to have been dead but was back alive again. He has experienced a new kind of joy. His life has been unbound and set free. Last week we looked at purpose. Today we look at friendship stumbling out of conflict. Friendship is a great source of joy. But as you know, friendship can also be one of the quickest places to lose our joy as well. This morning we've come to Philippians chapter 2, so I would invite you to pull out your Bible or the pew Bible on the rack in front of you and open up to Philippians chapter 2. You'll find it on page 953 of the pew Bible. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's the Apostle Paul writing about friendship. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfishness, ambition or conceit, But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Charles Dickens, in his Tale of Two Cities, tells us about a revolution. I don't mean the French Revolution. I mean what I'm calling the Friendship Revolution. Of course, Dickens does tell the story of the French Revolution. Tells this kind of macro, socioeconomic struggle From the streets of Paris come the great battle cry, liberty, equality, fraternity, or die, death. And, of course, Dickens, being the the Brit that he is, has his own kind of critique. And as he tells this story, he tells as this revolutionary fervor filled with hope and good things begins to sour, begins to turn into what will become the reign of terror and everything but fraternity. Uh, equality and liberty are realized. He writes of the instrument that is rolled out into the city square and of the many lives that are ground beneath its wheels. 
He turns the slogan on its head. Liberty, equality, fraternity or death. And then Dickens asked, the last, much the easiest to bestow, O guillotine. But there is another story that he tells, a revolution of friendship. And it's a story not of death, but of life. It's the story of one Sidney Carton. Sidney Carton is a an 18th century slacker. He has no friends. He's no friend to himself. He's got great gifts and abilities and talents. He's really a genius. In fact, he's the man behind the success of a leading lawyer in the city of Paris. But he's never been able to own his success. And he's squandered his life in dissipation, coarse, antisocial jesting and cynicism. Until one day, Sidney Carton comes across a woman who unaccountably sparks life in his soul and wakes him up. It's not that he ever thinks this woman would love him because he knows she wouldn't. In fact, she's in love with another man who bears, surprisingly, a striking resemblance to himself. But Sidney Carton will pledge himself to the welfare of this woman and to the man she loves and to their child in friendship. We are products ourselves of the Enlightenment, which bore the fruit of the French Revolution with all the good and all the bad. We ourselves believe in liberty, equality, and fraternity. But when Jesus begins to think about friendship, and when Paul tells the story of unbound joy in friendship, we find that Jesus has turned these values, all three of them, on their heads. Let's take a look at them. We'll look at them in reverse order. First, fraternity, brotherhood, friendship. We yearn for friendship, don't we? To be intimate, to be close, to be known by someone. Aristotle calls friendship one soul in two bodies. A lot of stress studies have been done on men over the years, and it wasn't until just a couple of years ago uh, that researchers at UCLA began to do studies on stress for women. What they found is fascinating, that women need friends. They discovered this a chemical that bathes the, the brain under stress, the female brain called oxytocin. You know, men, they have kind of two options faced with stress. There's the fight or flight. But this research discovered, you know, women do something a little bit different. They call it tend and befriend response to stress. Thanks to oxytocin, women can be relaxed in stressful situations by drawing into friendship and caring for each other and listening to each other. And all the guys are going, how sweet that is. But you know what, men? (laughs) You can stick with fight and flight if you want as well, but you need friends just the same. I've been reading Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, um, Team of Rivals, and many of you have read this book about Abraham Lincoln, his rivals, and uh, his new cabinet. And she tells a story about how back in the 19th century, you know, the circuit courts were courts uh, where the lawyers and the judges would get on horseback and they would circulate through the towns. They would bring the court to those people who had the complaints. And, of course, during the day, the attorneys would duke it out and battle in the courtroom. But then they'd retire in the evenings to the hearth uh, in the tavern. And they would tell stories uh, late into the night. And they would amuse themselves and one another. They retired to oftentimes shared bedrooms, even shared beds. You think of this giant Abraham Lincoln trying to share a bed with another man. And, you know, we would look at that, she says, as though it were some kind of a tinge with, uh, with homosexuality. 
But that's just because we've lost a sense of what it means for men to have real friendship with each other, to really care for each other, to be really honest with each other, and to move through life as peers and as buddies. Well, Jesus Christ brings a new standard of friendship. I mean, Jesus is, after all, for all people, I think, who've heard his story, a model of friendship. He demonstrates the kind of relational power the world has really not seen so consistently. He moves very freely among the elite to the outcast, the whole and healthy to the hurting and broken. And he teaches about friendship. He spends time with his friends in the upper room. And he tells them really that the heart of friendship with each other is a friendship with God. That's where all friendship begins. It's interesting in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul, he says something to them. Really, the, the, the command, the main imperative of this verse is in verse 2. Make my joy complete. That's the main command of this passage. Make my joy complete by being friends. And, and I wonder if the Apostle Paul has heard of the upper room when Jesus gathered with his friends and he said to them this in John 15, I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete or fulfilled. That's actually the same words that Paul is using when he says, look, I want your joy. I want my joy. I want the joy of Jesus to shape this community of friends. And Jesus will say, love one another as I have loved you. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Friendship is transferable. It comes from a source and it's shared with somebody else. Fraternity. Well, why do we find it so hard? I was reading recently C.S. Lewis. He writes a, an essay called The Sermon and the Lunch, which I don't mean to make you hungry. But The Sermon and the Lunch, Lewis in the afternoon is, is listening to the vicar preach a sermon. And the vicar says, you know, really the, 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 um, the foundry of the national character is the home. You know, it's essential. It's this place where we are shaped in who we are. It's this, this refuge and sanctuary of peace and tranquility. And, and, uh, and Lewis goes, you know, I, he lost the whole congregation because I had had lunch with this man just today. And anybody who lives in family relationship and knows what a home is like knows that it's so often just the opposite of a place of refuge and peace and tranquility. You know, we find friendship hard. And God has put people in our lives. We've been surrounded, maybe uh, in the cubicle behind us. We could be friends with them, but for some reason, we find it hard. Maybe in our fraternity house or our dormitory, maybe even our roommate, maybe in the church, maybe in our own home. Will we be a friend to someone? Rod Stewart, you know, having gone through several divorces, he says, next time I feel like getting married, I'm just going to take a woman I don't like and give her a house. You know? <laughs> Just kind of cut the middleman right out. Save some time. But if you read the scripture, the story of the scripture, you know, we only get a chap we only get two chapters of bliss in the Bible, right at the beginning. But from there on, relational conflict. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, David and Saul, Peter and John. And now we come to, in Philippians, Yodia and Syntyche. I mean 
from the start, you can see the problems coming, right? These two women, you know, obviously have been the, the, the butt end of every joke on the place, the playground from their childhood up. And you put the two of them together in the same church, conflict is bound to happen. Flip over to Philippians chapter 4. Having given this kind of general pastoral advice to the whole, Paul begins to drill down and be very specific. And he, he wants to lift up a conflict. Yodia and Syntyche. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you all also, uh, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. You know, th- these two women are stuck in relationship. Let me get a little aside here about women in the church. Um, you know, I, I do not think that these women are arguing over the wallpaper in the nursery. These women are significant leaders. Think about the way that Paul addresses them. They're co-workers. They have labored. They have struggled with me in the cause of the, of the gospel. They are to Paul as partners. And I think we should affirm that women have a place in the ministry of the church in, in its whole and in its entirety. Remember that the church in Philippi is really founded upon female leadership. We read the story in Acts 16. You know, Paul finds himself with a group of women who are gathered for prayer by the river. And there he shares first the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And Lydia, the, the foremost among them, she's a businesswoman. She's a merchant and a textile purple linen. But these two women, as anybody who is passionate about a mission, finds themselves in conflict. Remember, Paul has just talked about our purpose in life. And very forceful in that. And these women get that. And this church gets that. But when you are clear about your purpose and start to move ahead, friendships can be strained. And so how do we find this relational joy? Well, Paul gives us a hymn. He gives us a song. And you may know that in chapter 2 here, this is a great hymn of praise to, to, uh, to the stooping Lord King Jesus. And this has been a virtual playground for theologians across the century. There's so much theology in this hymn. But be very clear, Paul doesn't give this hymn for academic theology. Paul has this hymn here, he tells us, so that we can learn to be friends. He says, as he introduces it, verse 5, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Really what he's saying is, think this way. Think the way that Jesus thinks. And you'll find joy in friendship. Well, how does Jesus think about friendship, about fraternity? Let's move to the second value, equality. We'll have to think differently about equality. Verse 6, Paul describes the thought of Jesus. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Now, this is a picture of the pre-incarnate Son of God, the Logos, the divine, eternal word. And I don't exactly know how this happened. They don't tell you in seminary. But, you know, I imagine it's something like this. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are there from all eternity past. And they say, Houston, we have a little bit of a problem. We love this creation. We brought it into being. We, We love these creatures. We made them like ourselves to enjoy friendship. But they are 
They're hostile towards us. They're hostile towards each other. And so we have got to do something if we are going to fulfill our desire to love them, to give them joy. And they covenant together in the covenant of redemption. And the son says, I will go. I will take on flesh. I will take on humanity. I will live the life that they cannot live and die the death they deserve to die so that they may be set free. Now, what he doesn't say is, you know, Father, this is just not fair. You are going to be sitting up here in blissful glory. Right? The word here for form, and again, theologians debate about it, but I think the consensus view seems to be that the word for form means the outward appearance of the inner being. It's not that we could see God, but God radiates this kind of glory or honor or reputation. And the son doesn't say, hey, here you're going to be with all this glory and honor and reputation, and I'm going to go down here in humiliation and in shame. It's not fair. It's not equal. Well, he doesn't say that. But we do. We, we turn our friends into rivals on a regular basis. You've heard the story about the two campers that are out when a bear appears and one of them starts to lace up his shoes, his sneakers as quickly as he can. The other one says, hey, it's more experienced. You know, you can't outrun a bear. The guy goes, well, I don't have to outrun the bear, just you. you know? <laughs> and it's funny if it weren't so true that we see ourselves in constant competition with even those whom we love. Let me ask you a question. Imagine your colleague gets a promotion. You don't. How do you feel? Well, happy for them, of course. Well, and yet, if you were to be honest, does not it feel a little bit like a loss to you? You're right where you were before. And yet there is something unequal about the value now as this person moves on to more reputation. In marriage, we tell ourselves, let's do this thing 50-50. I'll meet you halfway. I'll put in my part. You put in your part. You don't put in your part. I'm not sure I can put in my part. Friends, that's a contract. It's not a covenant. Contracts are breached when one person defaults. Covenants stay in place. When we're angry, we're angry because of a perceived loss. We've lost something. Some value of ours has slipped away. I'm angry at my wife. So I feel like I've lost some respect. Or I'm not getting the love that I want. I want it to be at least equal or possibly favorable. But the friendship revolution is giving up value. It's giving up reputation. Paul says, hey, uh, you know, regard others as better than yourselves. Not that you're not worth anything, worthless worm that I am. No, Jesus Christ has died for you. But let the interests of the other pop up, he says. Let it pop up. Let it come up above your interests. Well, that's giving up. Equality. What about liberty? Liberty is the right to control our own destiny. And you and I take it as a given that, that we are free. And we are to be free. And our relationships are to be free. You know, come and go as you wish through this relationship. Uh, you do it your way. I do it my way. We make no claims on each other. If puss comes to shove, we say, as a little boy would say to his sister, you are not the boss of me. Right? We're free. We are captains of our own destiny. We have liberty. But in verse 7, we see that Jesus empties himself. Now, what does that emptying mean? First of all, 
This, this word, the, you know this word in Greek is kenosis. This is referred oftentimes to a kenotic or a hymn, the, the hymn, the great hymn of, of God's self-emptying. But what God does not empty himself of in becoming human in Jesus Christ, taking on humanity, is the divine attributes. God is still God. And Jesus is pure God of pure God, and he retains that identity and all of those attributes, but he limits them. He pulls them back. He makes the choice to curtail his freedom. Paul, I think, gives us really the answer to what this emptying is in the very next phrase, where he says he takes the form of a slave. What's a slave? A slave is someone with a limited set of freedoms. A limitation set upon them for the benefit or the welfare of another person. And so God has done for you and for me in Jesus Christ. He has given us the gift of his own limitation, of reducing his freedom for our benefit. From time to time, someone will come into my office, a couple, engaged or married, and they'll ask me a question. Well, George, if we get stuck in our relationship, who casts the tie-breaking vote? You know, you know the question. And I say it's the clergy. You know, we get, we get to decide. <laughs> in case you don't buy that, you may have to work this out on your own. Then oftentimes the question is framed out of a life experience and really the real tough choices that we have to make, sometimes two careers. Uh, are, are working against each other and choices do have to be made or, or the interests of our, our extended family or maybe the challenges of raising our own family. Sometimes it's kind of an ethereal question I, and, and what's behind it is, you know, I really want to know if I'm in charge. I really want to know if I get to control this relationship. Now let me say something kind of controversial because you've made me a pastor in Seattle and I guess this is the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> Women are supposed to submit to their husbands. And men are supposed to submit to their wives. Ephesians 5, verse 21, Paul says, Submit yourselves to one another. And then he gets more specific. In the very next verse 22, he says, Wives, there's no verb, to your husbands. A few verses later, husbands, to your wives, love them as Christ loved the church and gave himself for them. You and I are called as Christians in friendship, the special friendship called marriage in particular, to give up our rights, to give up our freedom, to see another person flourish. And that's the nature of all Christian friendship. That's where the joy of friendship comes for followers of Jesus Christ. So the friendship revolution is giving up control. It's limiting my freedom to serve you. Fraternity, equality, liberty, or death. It sounds like dangerous stuff. And for Jesus, it is dangerous. It will cost him his life. And for Sidney Carton, our hero of the friendship revolution, it's going to cost him his life as well. You see... Sidney Carton's family, to whom he desires to be pledged in friendship, has come into trouble. The father of the home has found himself, through the circumstances of the revolution, in prison on death row. And Sidney has exploited the fact that he looks like this man. Taking his form, he sneaks into prison, drugs him, because he knows he won't comply with this plan, and emits him from the prison 
on a wagon and Carton there sits the next day to be taken to the guillotine. For him, it is not safe. But he remembers from his father's funeral the teaching of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. And friends, Paul uses this language, look, regard, look. We are able in Jesus to see through the cost of our friendship to the benefit of life eternal in Jesus Christ. This admonition to be a friend is bracketed by two bits of of theology. First verse, it's very Trinitarian. You remember the benediction, the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Those are the words of Paul in another place in the scripture. But here he uses the same kind of formula. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from the love of God, any sharing in the Spirit, then you have the resources for friendship. Because when you've been swept into the mystery of the Trinitarian love of God. And your interests are secured. If you know this week your interests are secured, you will have the freedom to make somebody else's interests your primary concern. And then at the end of this passage, it ends with this great exaltation. The stooping king is raised up and exalted. He's got all his reputation back and more. If you invest in the kingdom of this king, someday this thing goes public. And you will enjoy all of the glory, all of the reputation that he enjoys. So I want to read the final page of Tale of Two Cities for you. And as I read, I want you to think about the friends. The friends that are hard to be friends to in your life. Maybe there's a particular person. And this last page is a vision, a flash forward that Sidney Carton is able to receive when he's two people away from the blade. He's able to see through his death to the life that his act of friendship will bring. And it brings life to him as well. And I trust as you look through your acts of friendship, you will know great joy, as does Sidney Carton. I see Bar Sad and the Cly, Defarge, the Vengeance, the Juryman, the Judge. Long ranks of new oppressors who have risen on the destruction of the old, perishing by this retributive instrument before it shall cease out of its present use. I see a beautiful city and a brilliant people rising from this abyss. And in their struggle to be truly free, in their triumphs and defeats through long, long years to come, I see the evil of this time and of the previous time of which this is the natural birth gradually making expiation for itself and wearing out. I see the lives for which I lay down my life peaceful and useful, prosperous and happy in that England which I shall see no more. I see her with a child upon her bosom who bears my name. I see her father aged and bent, but otherwise restored and faithful to all men in his healing office. And at peace, I see the good old man, so long their friend in 10 years time, enriching them with all he has and passing tranquilly to his reward. I see that I hold a sanctuary in their hearts 
and in the hearts of their descendants generations hence. I see her, an old woman, weeping for me on the anniversary of this day. I see her and her husband, their course done, lying side by side in their last earthly bed. And I know that each was not more honored and held sacred in the other's soul than I was in the souls of both. I see that child who lay upon her bosom and who bore my name, a man winning his way up in that path of life which once was mine. I see him winning it so well that my name is made illustrious there by the light of his. I see the blots I threw upon it faded away. I see him foremost of just judges and honored men bringing a boy of my name with a forehead that I know with golden hair to this place. Then fair to look upon with not a trace of this day's disfigurement. And I hear him tell the child my story with a tender and a faltering voice. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this day you have come to befriend us, to set us free with joy to befriend others. Grant us the faith, the courage, and the love to do so. In the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.